Take your copy of God's Word this morning, if you will, and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And I must tell you that there are moments in my life where I get overwhelmed. I don't know about you. Do you, do you have some of those moments where you're just kind of overwhelmed about things, maybe looking toward the future or seeing some of the things that are coming down the pipe? I, and, and I feel bad about saying that this morning because I recognize that I'm here in this sanctuary and it's warm and uh, I have, you know, somewhat the attention of you all and I'm not in Ringgold. Now, I know there's a blessing just in that statement that I'm not in Ringgold, but I, I also mean that I'm not over like with 180 plus or so people, mostly youth, who are going about the Princess Warrior Weekend. Some of you know that they're over there right now and they're worshiping this morning. I say to you, I think I'd really be overwhelmed if I had been there with them this morning. How about you? Especially if we had not slept much last night because we had been with all that group. But there are times, there are times that I become overwhelmed about things. And, and I see what God is putting in front of me and I just become concerned. As a matter of fact, and I, I don't know if it, would fit right here as well, but I'm going to put it here to, to tell you that there's almost like this little music that can become like, uh, well, it can become like my theme song at times. Uh, yeah. yeah. You ever heard that song? Some of you are familiar with it? Some of you have seen I mean, it's kind of like I got a mission out there, but I feel like I've been suspended from the ceiling and I'm trying to get all of this work done and it just seems to be impossible. Huh? Have you ever felt like that? Like what God put in front of you? And you know God was the one that put it in front of you, that God allowed it to come, but it just seems like this cannot happen. I mean, it is impossible for you and for, for I to be able to achieve what God has called us to. Well, that may seem like your theme song sometime, but I want you to hear this morning, and I want to try to give it to you as clearly as I can, that with God, when he calls you to a mission or a task or a job, it is always possible because he himself gives you the energy and the strength that is necessary for you to accomplish his purpose. He does it so that he can achieve the maximum glory for himself and the maximum good for us. And that's the basic point that I want to I show you this morning. Acts chapter 2, I mean, we're right in the middle of this impossible task, it seems like. Remember last week when we talked about Jesus ascending into heaven, he looked at his disciples and he said to them, you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, this is what you are going to do. I'm going to leave you. But I've got a task for you. And I'm going to say, as I would think back, as I would try to put myself in their shoes, that it must have seemed impossible. Hear it again. You disciples, basically the 11 of you, I'm going to assign to be my witnesses. You're going to go right into Jerusalem. Remember, the heart of hostility. The place where the Savior the place where your master was crucified, I'm sending you there first. And then I'm going to spread you out. You're going into Judea. Then you're going up to Samaria, into that area that has long held, again, hostility toward your people. 
and then you are going to the ends of the earth. If I had been a disciple and I had been journaling, I probably would have journaled some about the questions that I had, especially the task that God had given and how in the world we could accomplish that. I mean, remember Jesus said to them, wait, just stay right there and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. So here for a week or so, they're waiting and they're listening. They're praying, the Bible says. They're in one accord. But can you imagine, I I think if I'd have been journaling, I I would have been kind of thinking like, okay, Jesus just ascended and journal... Jesus said that we are going to reach the world, the world. We're going to take the gospel all into different regions. Again, I back up because I got to start in Jerusalem where there is going to be persecution. Does Jesus know what an impossible task this is? Then I've got to go to Judea Judea and Samaria. We got to go to the ends of the earth. Dear Journal, I've been talking to Peter about this. I told him that we better go ahead and get on orbits and travelocity, and we need to find the tickets that we need. Dear Journal, Peter doesn't listen, but you already know that. Dear Journal, how could we possibly achieve this mission and this purpose? We know what Jesus said, but it seems impossible. And then Acts 2 rolls around. Acts 2 verse 1. Listen to the way Luke records it for us. He says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. How can you achieve the impossible? How can you achieve that which you just cannot even begin to fathom could be fulfilled? How can you achieve it? Through the work of God and the Holy Spirit coming and giving exactly what is necessary for you to accomplish your task. I say again to you today that you and I need to hear this. There is no task impossible with God's strength. All things are possible with Him. And you and I need to know that when God calls us to a task, when He calls us to a mission, then He will empower us with the necessary resources to fulfill that mission. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. He's going to give us right exactly what we need. So here are these disciples, and and there are about like 120 believers, because if you go back and look at chapter 1, it says that there's basically a tenfold increase of those who are in attendance. Not just the 11, but you actually have 120 believers who come together and they've been praying this, these last few days, asking God to continue to be with them, obviously, and to give them what is necessary. And it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, I think it's the idea that 
that the time had been fulfilled exactly the way God intended it. God sent the Holy Spirit upon those believers to empower them and to give them what was necessary to fulfill their task. I want to talk about the Holy Spirit's presence in a moment, but I want to stop here again and just probe a little further into that idea of the impossible task. It seemed to be impossible that God would take a ragtag group of believers and launch a worldwide mission. It does seem impossible. Now, I know some of you look and say, well, again, it's the disciples, Peter and, and, and John and Andrew. You got all those people. They're so, so different from us. Are they really? Do you remember reading through those gospels about these people? Do you not see that they are flesh and blood just like us? Do you not see that they have troubles and they have issues just like us? And yet, God chose them just like he chooses us now. And he chooses us to do things. And there are times, hey, there are times that we will feel so unworthy and so inadequate. As a matter of fact, I would say that should be the norm in our life, that we feel inadequate to achieve what God has called us to achieve. I mean, there are going to be those times, right? A new job that you've been given, an opportunity that God has blessed you with. You think to yourself, how can I do this? Um, an opportunity perhaps within your family. It may not even be by your own choosing. Perhaps you decide because of the situation that you have to raise your grandkids. Hey, God can give you the strength. You may feel inadequate, but somehow God gives you the strength and the opportunity that you need at that moment. God always seems to be able to work in the moment of impossibility to show his glory. I remember some years ago, obviously, I was at New Orleans Seminary, and I was studying. I was working on my doctorate. And first of all, just the idea that I would be able to do my doctorate, be able to work through those things. Uh, that, was, that was the work of God in my heart and life, you know, that he would allow me to do that. But I would work on it. And man, there were some tough days. There were days when I was ready to give up. Any of you ever have educational experiences like that? When I was like, I am just stepping out. But in the midst of my doctoral work, I'd finished all my seminars. I got a, I got a letter in the mail from a church in Louisiana that asked me if I would fill out a questionnaire for them. I went and I looked at it. I, I don't know if I've told you this before, but actually it had come because of my professor, Dr. Reggie Oje, who was the interim at that church, and he had he had told them that they ought to look toward my direction. And one day we walked in and he said to me, he said, hey, I need your resume, Reggie. And I said, hey, that's good, Dr. OJ, but I love where I am right now. It is awesome. People are getting saved. Things are happening. I get to hunt just about every day during hunting season. It, I mean, it, it's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need to go anywhere. I'm not looking to go anywhere. I really want to stay right where I am. He said, okay, I understand that. About a month later, I walked in his office. I was grading for him at that point as a teaching assistant. And Dr. OJ said, 
hey, I need to get your resume. I said, no, no, Dr. OJ, you don't remember. I told you about a month ago, I don't really want to give my resume. We're happy where we are. Leslie and I talked about it. We're, we're good. He said, Reggie, said, you've forgotten something. He said, you have forgotten that this is a, profess a professor-student relationship and I'm the professor and you're the student. You've forgotten that. And I said, no, I haven't. As a matter of fact, you will have my resume next week. As soon as I come back down here, the very next time I come to the campus in New Orleans, you will have my resume. He had passed it on. Again, I received this questionnaire. Didn't even ask him which church it was because I really didn't care. I'm going to be honest. Can, can we be real this morning? I'm a Mississippi boy. I wasn't sure I was going to fare too well in the state of Louisiana. And I knew he was in Louisiana. I said, I don't think I can handle that. You know, and I know they can't handle me. So we just decided I didn't even want to know the name of the church until I got that questionnaire. Zachary, Louisiana. Looked at Leslie and said, where is Zachary? She said, I don't know where Zachary is. I said, I don't know either. Got a little map, looked it down, stole, and we ended up causing some prompting by the Holy Spirit and probably Dr. O.J. and others. We sent it back, and, uh, and we talked with them. And, you know, I was 27 years old. I was 27. The church there was a strong church, but it had been through a lot, a lot of difficulties, a lot of problems before I got there. And um, I really struggled whether or not the Lord would even allow me to be a part of this church, much less be able to lead this church in the way that I should. So I go down to seminary again one day, and I see a guy named Argel Smith. Some of you have heard about before. He was one of my professors. And of course, professors gossip a lot. So uh, <laughs> Dr., Dr. Smith looked at me and he said, Reggie, he said, are you going to uh, take the pastorate at First Zachary? And I was like, what? How do you know this? This is supposed to be confidential? Obviously, Dr. OJ is saying some things around. And I looked at him and I said, Our, Dr. Smith, I don't know. He said, well, don't you know about it? I said, I don't know if I can. He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm 27 years old. I don't know if I can step into this situation the way it is. I don't know if I can do it. He looked at me and he gave me that vote of approval and said, you absolutely can't do it. And I said, what did you say? He said, you can't do this. But God can. Oh, I know that spiritual answer. I know. Dr. Smith, I was expecting that spiritual kind of, I understand. He said, no, no, no. He said, you ever seen that movie? I said, what movie? He said, that movie that's got like Tom Cruise as a lawyer in it. I said, oh, there's a few of those or so. And he said, you remember, he said he's standing before the judge and, and the judge looks at him. And the judge says to him, says, young man, are you in over your head? And he said, that young lawyer represented by Tom Cruise says, absolutely. He said, there are going to be some days where you say, I'm absolutely in over my head. I have no idea what I'm doing. And yet, that is when God will demonstrate his strength, his wisdom, and his power in your life. Because if ministry and our mission is only about what we can achieve, it's not much about ministry or mission then, is it? It's got to be what God can achieve 
through you. Now think about that. Think about these early believers who were called to win the world for Christ, who were called to make the gospel known. These early believers who must have thought to themselves, we can't achieve it on our own. And certainly they could not. But God was not about building their reputation. He was about building a name for himself. God is not just about what you can do. God is about what he can do through you. Do you hear me? God is not just about what you can achieve. That's not just what he wants to do. Oh, you can achieve a lot. I see a lot of you today that God has blessed you and he's blessed me with different types of gifts and talents. And that's awesome. But we have a God that is not content on allowing you to achieve what you can achieve on your own. We have a God who wants to show his glory and his goodness by taking you and doing things with you that you could never imagine. And this is not just the power of positive thinking speech that I'm giving you. It is the power of the person of the Holy Spirit in your life. There's a difference. Certainly, it's good for us to believe we can do it. But it goes beyond just our positive thinking about ourselves. How can we achieve what God calls us to do? How can we accomplish a task that looks to be impossible? The only way we can do it is the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us and giving us exactly what we need so that he can achieve the glory. Kind of getting ahead of myself, but... Isn't it just awesome when God does something and it's just undeniable that it's God behind it? I think for every church that I've pastored, every church I've pastored, I have prayed, God, you do something in our midst. You work in such an incredible way that nobody else could get the glory for it. Only you. Only you would be recognized and praised for what occurred. God, I don't want a church that we see things in that people give all the credit to the preacher or the pastor. If only the preacher or the pastor, if he's the only one that can achieve it, then it's not much worth achieving. God, I, I don't want to just see things happen in a wonderful way just so that we can give credit to the deacons or the church leadership or the staff or the Sundays. No, God, I want you to do something so powerful in our midst that we know that you alone demonstrated your power and your glory. Here at Pentecost, there's no mistaking. There's no mistaking that it is God who is empowering his people. When Pentecost had fully come, when the moment had been fulfilled, when they're sitting there waiting for their mission, when they're waiting for their task, God descends. What a moment that must have been. Verse 2, it said, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. So here they are in this house, 120 or so of them. 
And all of a sudden, this phenomenon, this wind, it seems, blows through the house, or at least it sounds like it. Now, over the last couple of days, we've heard a little wind, right? Some of you, unfortunately, have seen some of the damage that wind can bring. But here it says it's like this loud sound. It's like this tornadic type of activity that comes through the house demonstrating the presence of God. Don't miss it. In the New Testament, in the Greek language, the word pneuma, which refers to the Spirit, also refers to wind or breath. The Old Testament, the Hebrew, ruach, meant breath, wind, the Spirit. In other words, there was this, this presence, it seemed, of God that was found in even the wind, even His Spirit. It was a manifestation of His presence. There was a tornadic thundering that the people heard. And it says that over each one of them sat these tongues of fire. Fire, again, demonstrates the presence of God. Often it's associated with manifestations of God. If you look at the Old Testament and beyond, you will see it is the idea that God has come. The Holy Spirit has come. And they began to speak in tongues. I want to address that in a moment, but let me say this to you today. You and I need to understand the reality of the Holy Spirit, that He is the third person of the Trinity, that He came on the day of Pentecost, and that He came for the life empowerment of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the Holy Spirit is still here today. Now understand that when you look at this passage, you are looking at a passage that is describing to you what is happening. It is describing to you the reality of the Holy Spirit's coming here on this earth. I often remind people that the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. What do I mean by that? It describes to us what is happening. It does not mean that the Holy Spirit comes in the exact way every time. He does not say this is exactly how it happens each and every moment that the Holy Spirit comes. I would even suggest to you that the day of Pentecost was a unique moment. There was no other one like it. Certainly the Holy Spirit will come upon the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit will come upon the Gentiles. And you will be moving past this transitional period of God's work in the nations. But the Holy Spirit came. The pattern is different in Acts 2, in Acts 8, in Acts 10. Because it is not giving us the normative practice, the normative pattern in each case. He is just describing to us what is happening in the life of the church and how the church is being empowered. So you say all that. What does the Holy Spirit do? Without me getting too far off track. Some of you say, I think you already have. But... Without getting too far off track, may I suggest to you that each believer experiences the Holy Spirit when that believer comes to faith in Christ. And this is what occurs. Thanks to a professor years ago that helped me see this and understand it and remember it by the acrostic ribs. Ribs. What does the Holy Spirit do when He comes into your life at the very moment that you're saved? 
He regenerates you. What does regeneration mean? It means you are born again. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? Unless you are born of water, which I believe he is speaking about a physical birth, and you are born of the Spirit, a spiritual birth, then you will not know or you'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he said you have to be born of the Spirit. You and I, when we're saved, if we've given our lives to him, if we've had faith and trust in him, he births us into his family. We're regenerated. What else does the Holy Spirit do at that moment? He indwells us. The scripture says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 3, 16. So at the very moment I accept Jesus as my Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and sets up residence in me. And he indwells me. As I said a few weeks ago, I get all of him that I ever need. Because God doesn't just give us part of himself. He gives us all of himself. The Holy Spirit residing within us. He indwells us. He regenerates us. He indwells us. He baptizes us. He baptizes us. John the Baptist had said that there would come one who would baptize us, certainly in the Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13 said, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we have been made to drink into one Spirit. We've been baptized. The word baptized, obviously, we would say means immersed. So think of it in that way, if you like that language. We've been immersed in the Spirit of God. He's immersed us at the very moment that we come to faith. And finally, what happens? At the moment you come to faith, you're regenerated, you're indwelt, you're baptized, you're sealed. You're sealed. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, that that is a guarantee of our redemption and the inheritance that we have. It's pretty awesome work of the Holy Spirit in our life when we're saved, right? He births us. He indwells us. He takes up residence. He immerses us in the Spirit and He seals us until the day when we will see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. He works within us and He empowers us. I really believe that we in our churches today have so lost sight of the Holy Spirit's empowerment. We've been so concerned about what people would say and others in our lives that that we have missed the empowerment of the Spirit each day to give us exactly what we need so that we can achieve the, quote, impossible mission, the impossible task. Notice what it does here, again, in Pentecost. It says, there appeared to them the divided tongues of fire, so the fire of tongues upon each head, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Now, there's going to be probably another day when we can discuss tongues and really what that would look like in the church's life in the New Testament. And, but I would say to you that as I read this passage, at least as I identify the tongues that are here, these are languages that are actually recognized by the people who are in Jerusalem. 
They understand this language. It's not an unintelligible language. It is an intelligible language. People can understand. Because it says, as you continue reading in verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each in our own language, in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya and adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? The Spirit so moved on that day of Pentecost in that fulfillment that those early believers, and actually I think all 120 of them were counted in this number that all of them began to speak in languages that the people could understand. Amazing. That all these people in Jerusalem, they hear, well, I bet they did hear something going on, don't you? They didn't have to have the sirens going off. They just heard this wind. They heard this speaking in the house and people began just to, to come to see what was happening to draw them and draw their attention. And then they began to hear. They began to understand. In some ways, it was like a reversal of Babel. Remember Babel, where God confused their language? Confused them because they would not listen to Him and spread out and multiply, so He confused their language? Now He is, in a sense, He is bringing forth all these nations, and they can hear, and they can understand why? Because the Holy Spirit had come. God had a mission and a purpose. So what did God do? God said, I will empower you to do your mission. I mean, these were people, many of them from Galilee, many of them from that area that could not understand other languages. How in the world would God get out his gospel, his good news? Well, he just decided, you know what? The Holy Spirit can give the power for, for these individuals to speak and to bring my good news to the hearing of those who were there. Certainly that's what God did in so many ways, approving, sending His Spirit to empower the mission. Hey, a few weeks ago, I talked to you about how the gospel of Luke was the power of one or the use of one, how God brought one, the Lord Jesus, and used him in mission, used him in purpose. So you have the mission of one in the Gospel of Luke. In the book of Acts, you have the mission of what? Many. You remember when Jesus was baptized and launched his public ministry? What happened? The Holy Spirit descended as a dove, affirming and obviously empowering if you read the life of Jesus. Here we are on the day of Pentecost. The church, the many. What does God do? He sends the Holy Spirit once again to affirm, 
to launch and to empower the ministry of his people. And all these who were there, Jews of the dispersion, they'd all come in for Pentecost. Pentecost was a feast that would have drawn so many. You might even suggest, and some have, that there were more people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost than there would have been on the day of the Passover. Because the weather would have been better and people would have made the pilgrimage there to Jerusalem. And all these different, I mean, look at this. They're from all these different regions. Yes, they come from Jewish backgrounds, but they're all of the dispersion. They've all been scattered through the years. They've gathered back in and here they are. And God, through the Holy Spirit, brings them, brings them into the hearing of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, there were detractors. It says others mocked them. What did they say? They're full of new wine. They're drunk. They took away from the Spirit's work in their life. I love the way Peter answered, and I'm going to get more into his message next week. But look at verse 14. It says, but Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them. He addressed them. In other words, this was a serious moment for him to speak to them. And yet, he began by saying, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. He basically said, you understand it's just nine o'clock. Most of us don't get drunk until after 9 a.m. in the morning. I'm not talking about the disciples, but that is, he is like, come on, people. He's, he's kind of like, guys, I mean, we don't even, they don't even really eat before the 9 o'clock prayer hour, so much less you think we're drunk. That's what he's saying. He said, that is not happening. He says, we're not drunk. Instead, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maidservants and on my maidservants, men servants and maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He said, you understand this is not some type of intoxication by alcohol. This is the empowerment by the Holy Spirit that God has given us so that we can declare. He said he was going to, and he has kept his promise so that we can declare that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The day of Pentecost. It's been called the Feast of Weeks went back and did a little bit of study, just a little bit on the feast. And there, there are so many different takes upon the Jewish feast. But it was interesting that what I found is that some people associated it with the feast of first fruits. Now, after Passover, after Passover occurs, they would have a moment in the life of the nation where they would go before God and they would thank God for his provision and how he had taken care of them. Some would track it to the Sunday, the first day of the week after Passover. And they would say that would be the day when they would celebrate the barley harvest because barley would come before wheat. And they would come in and they, according to the scripture, they would 
wave a sheaf of the barley leaf so that they could praise God for His provision. It would be like the first, first fruits were coming in. That's the reason they would call it the Feast of the First Fruits. Well, if that's the case, even if it's around that time, it's a great analogy to the Lord Jesus and His resurrection on that Sunday, right? And the Scripture does teach us that He was the first fruit. That He was reaped from the dead, and one of these days, you and I, thanks be to Him, we will be resurrected as well. He was just the first fruit of what is to come. But here at Pentecost, some 50 days later, after Passover, that's the reason the Greek Pente, Pentecost, the 50 days, the Feast of Weeks that would come. It would be to celebrate the wheat harvest, the beginning of the wheat harvest. They would bring the wheat in and they would, they would actually bake loaves and take it before God and, and give it to God to celebrate because they wanted to see how God had given that initial harvest. I've probably studied that before and looked at this passage, but I don't know if I'd ever really gotten this. Because the idea that the wheat was coming forth and it was just being produced and it was, it was coming out of the fields and they were worshiping for what God had done. On the day of Pentecost, these people who come to faith in Christ, it's like the first ones brought in from the harvest. It's like the harvest is just beginning. The work is just beginning. You thought it was impossible. You thought it was impossible to go to the ends of the earth. And what I've done basically is bring all kinds of nations right here to Jerusalem so they can hear as I empowered you to speak in the different languages. Isn't that cool? I mean, God's going to tr truly fulfill it as we look through the book of Acts and you see him going wrong. But hey, isn't it cool just to know God's already showing them and confirming? I, I, I'm proud every now and then the Lord would just say, hey, let me confirm my work in your life. You know, I'm going to give you just a little bit of bit so you can see this is exactly what I'm going to do. Here there's affirmation and confirmation. And they begin the harvest. And for some 2,000 years, guess what's happened? The harvest has continued. People have been still sharing the same message. The message I share to you is the same message that Peter preached that day. Whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. You can come into the family. Be a part of the harvest. Some of us who have been saved... Same message I heard some years ago when I gave my heart and life to him and when God brought me in to his family. Because this is the God we serve. The God who would take the impossible and make it possible. The God who would take our lives and bring us into his family. We shouldn't be surprised, by the way, because when I look at the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and I see how a dead man can live again, I must know that through Jesus Christ, His power, the work of God, the Holy Spirit in my life, then anything is possible. Because I believe in a living King today. So you and I can see that which we deem to be impossible, and God can make it possible. Just this week, some of you have seen it. Some of you... 
struggling through class, thinking, I don't think I'll ever get this degree finished. And yet God's giving you extra strength because that's the God who can work in your life. A friend of mine this week that thought, I can't stand and officiate my dad's funeral. God gave him the power and the strength to do what he thought was impossible. Some of you have seen, you've seen addictions. You've seen uh, sicknesses. And you thought it's impossible for anything to happen with this. There is always possibility in the shadow of the Most High. God always gives possibility because He is the one who gives strength and resources. He is the one who has given us the Holy Spirit to live within us. I say to you today, for us as a church, as we look forward to this year and beyond and the nations that God has called us to reach here and beyond, He has given us everything necessary to fulfill His work. The harvest has already begun. Will we be diligent to be about the fields, laboring for His glory and His good? Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for these words. Thank you for reminding us that nothing is too big for you. That your mission is still straight for us and that you still empower us to accomplish your task. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit that indwells within us, Lord, that it would continue to empower us as we listen and submit and surrender to him, to who he is. And God, this morning, for people who are overwhelmed and they feel like it's impossible, some of the tasks you've called them to, you remind them right now that you haven't left them. You remind them that you've given them the power and the strength to accomplish what your will is for their lives. And may we be faithful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?